Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding and Conflict, and I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Kristen Kirkpatrick. Kristen Kirkpatrick is a dietitian and consultant of wellness nutrition services at the Cleveland Clinic Wellness Institute in Cleveland, as well as the president of KAK Consulting, LLC. She has over 18 years of experience in the health management area and holds an MS in health promotion management. Welcome, Kristen Kirkpatrick. A pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Catherine. Such an honor for me to be here. Thank you. And, you know, people might be wondering, wow, this is Divorce Dialogues. Why is Catherine having a dietitian and nutritionist on the show? Yeah. And I think the, the reason for me is, well, you know, you are what you eat, and there's so much that we can do to manage our well-being by what we're putting into our body. And during a divorce, it seems like that's a really important time to do that. Is that right or am I completely off base? No, I think you're completely on base. And I think that it also is a component that while you're going through divorce, at least for the clients and patients that I've had, they're not thinking of that aspect. They're not considering how the choices that they're making during this transition period related to food and overall wellness and exercise, how that can negatively impact really a lot of things that can affect self-esteem, their weight, their disease risk, I mean, everything. And so I think it's like you are the expert here, but it is a reawakening. And part of that has to be how do we reawaken, how do we get back on track with our lifestyle habits that will impact our longevity and, and our self-esteem really. Yeah, I think that's a really important factor. And, you know, my observation is that many, many times when people are going through divorce, they either lose a lot of weight or gain a lot of weight. What is that all about? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. When I was preparing for this interview, those were the two main things I wanted to make. So you hit the nail on the head. So I think the lose a lot of weight, at least what I have seen with my patients, is that's caused by extreme stress. It's caused by missing meals, but not missing meals in a theological healthy manner, okay? So not not fasting. This is not purposeful missing meals. That's not good because that can, of course, and we can talk about this further on, this affects your your muscle tone and things like that and, and other things that can come about that. Um, so that's kind of one end of the spectrum. The other end, of course, is the weight gain. And the weight gain, in my opinion, makes a little bit more sense because if you look at the function of food, every food has some function in the body, whether it is a good function or a bad function. Many of the things that people turn to during times of stress and depression and anxiety tend not to be the healthiest options. They, they make you feel good temporarily, then you feel awful, and you need more to get that good feeling back. And so that is a lot of times what happens with the weight gain. And then, of course, um, the mindless eating. So just kind of sitting around and munching when, you know, the last thing you're doing is listening to hunger, listening to what your body wants. That's not a priority at that point. So, yeah, you can fall into both camps. Both of them can be rather unhealthy, though. 
Yeah, no, I have to say, I think that you fall into the kind of person who eats under stress or doesn't eat under stress, right? Like one mm-hmm. or the other, right? I tend to be the not eat under stress, but it doesn't, you know, people are like, oh, that's a better one to have, but not really, because then you just end up feeling worse. Yeah. Is that right? I end up like feeling this? worse. Yeah. And, and also it can kind of, it can backfire and rebound, right? So I've had many clients that have come to me after they've dropped a huge amount of weight because of extreme stress. A lot of times, if they started as a client years with me prior because they wanted to lose weight, now they're coming to me because they say, I think I've lost too much weight and I don't like the way I look and I want to get back on track. So I think, you know, the real challenge, Catherine, with the extreme weight loss is at some point you have to get back to norm, right? I mean, that's true for your life. It's also true for your dietary habits. So when you get back to norm, when you have deprived the body of nourishment for way too long, the body kind of backfires on you. So it can backfire by sucking in every calorie and making you have a rapid weight gain. It can backfire by causing you to have more risk for certain diseases, especially if the habit goes on too long and your body starts looking for nourishment via muscle or your heart muscle and things like that, which is exactly what happens with the body. So I just think that both areas can backfire, but I don't think the extreme weight loss is sustainable and and cause health problems. It's, it's almost a guarantee, and I've seen it in the majority of my patients that just lose a ton of weight. They end up gaining it at some point, maybe at the point when they're happy again, but it comes back. So we have to we have to think about this time as a time of balance and what that looks like. And I'm not at all suggesting we eat when we're not hungry. But we don't want to take it to the extreme of I'm just going to forget eating because I can't focus on it right now. So what can people do, Kristen Kirkpatrick, while they're going through divorce or another stressful time in their life to manage what they're eating in order to maybe maintain a more level mood or, or even feel better? Besides yeah. just, well, you know, a gigantic quart of mint chocolate chip. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that feels good temporarily, right? But not after the fact. So I think that there's there's a few things here. Number one, there is a lot of data that we've seen in the past decade linking food and mood. Um, we know that there are certain nutrients, certain foods that impact in a positive way our mental health status and can impact in a negative way as well. I think that's step number one. And step number two is to really look more inward into more intuitive eating. So intuitive eating is not so much I'm counting calories, I'm counting carbs, uh, I'm doing something strict, I'm cutting out a food group, but it's more about kind of getting to the root of how you assess your ability to need fuel. As boring and as unsexy as it sounds, Catherine, at the end of the day, we need to look at our diet as something that fuels us. And we don't want to overfuel, we don't want to underfuel. So that's where the balance comes in and trying to figure out how to do that. Intuitive eating is also about having that mint chocolate chip ice cream, but not having it frequently and not having the whole pint, right? So allowing yourself an indulgence or allowing yourself something that you might think is quote unquote bad without the shame and the guilt that often follows because it's the shame and the guilt that makes us go into a full on binge. So I think those are the two main components, intuitive eating and then figuring out, okay, what makes me feel more lousy and what makes me feel better? And what are some of the evidence-based answers to that as well? What, what's the data tell us? 
And so how can people find some information about this? Because I think that when people are going, again, through a divorce or following the loss of a spouse or loss of a parent, it's very disorienting. And the whole world seems kind of upside down. And, you know, to be like, wait, now I have to kind of learn this thing, intuitive eating. I can't even intuit, you know, my way into the bathroom, you know. Everything just feels so crazy and upside down. So. So are there, Kristen, some things that people, like some simple guideposts that people can follow, you know, do this, don't do that, that really could help them get started with it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think number one, you know, let's kind of figure out what feel better from the data perspective. So things that have very strong data, especially in women, are vitamin D. So making sure your vitamin D status is adequate. We know that when vitamin D levels are low in the brain, the risk for depression and anxiety goes up. Now, vitamin D is not very well absorbed through food. The body just doesn't get it, and it has to convert it into a form that it does understand. And that conversion is really not complete. So it's not really an ideal source which is why a lot of times you have to look for a supplemental form of vitamin D. So I think, number one, my recommendation is always if you're able to work with your dietitian or your physician, your chiropractor, whoever you're working with, and figure out what your D status is and then think about some sort of supplementation, right, to get those D levels up. At the same time, omega fatty acids have been found in multiple studies to really improve depression scores. I stop to use this word because it's not scientific, but there is truly something magical about omega-3 fatty acids and the brain as it relates specifically to mental health. Uh, we've just seen too many trials looking at some of these benefits. So, again, fish, fatty fish, marine-based sources of omega-3 fatty acids are going to be the best. They don't require conversion, and the studies have been on the marine-based sources, which is EPA and DHA. If you're someone who doesn't like fish, you can go for a supplement. In fact, you can pair your omega-3 supplementation with your vitamin D supplementation, since vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, right, or in, in the presence of fat. If you would prefer not to take a supplement and you don't like fish, you can, of course, go with walnut sources as well. And then I think, like, those are two big ones. But the biggest one is really trying to improve your overall gut health. So I think when it comes to gut health, there there are certain things that we have seen in the studies um, that we know can improve gut health. Uh, we know that getting adequate fiber in the diet is really essential. So fiber, of course, comes from plants, comes from fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds. Really, the, the tenets really of a Mediterranean diet. A Mediterranean diet is also what I would call one of the best mental health and gut producing diets. Um, so that's number one. I think that people can also consider adding in either fermented foods in the diet. That helps with probiotics. And so that could be miso or pickles or sauerkraut or tempeh or kombucha, right? So just like something simple like that. Or it could be a supplement, taking a probiotic supplement a few times a week to try and improve that gut health as well. There are some other factors to gut health that we've seen in studies. So one thing that I notice now that could be a negative impact to gut health is the excessive use of hand sanitizing agents and cleanliness. So we've seen an increase in that. And what we know from studies is that over cleanliness does not improve gut health. It makes it worse because you need a variety of microbes to be able for your general gut health to flourish. 
So when you wipe out everything, you're wiping out some of the good microbes as well. Something to think about with that one, you know, just kind of as we're, of course, we want to make sure that we are avoiding developing any kind of infection or disease, but to the extent of, you know, our gut health really suffering, we want to, again, put that balance out there. I think the other thing, Catherine, with this is that what I've noticed, I've seen hundreds of patients at the Cleveland Clinic, and I would say the majority of them, they don't respond well to a lot of different access plans. So if I told my patient, here's 10 things I want you to do, maybe my patient can do one thing. So I think especially for your audience, the individuals that are going through divorce, where they have so many other factors that are really affecting their ability to focus on wellness, maybe just focus on one thing. Focus on, okay, I'm going to take a vitamin D supplement or I'm going to take a few steps to improve my gut health. You know, that's something that I think can't be overstated because we want people to be able to achieve the goals that they're setting. And I mean, this is your expertise, but you know, if you, if you make too many goals and you can't reach them, it just brings you right back to square one. I think sometimes you got to take that baby steps approach as well. I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, or perhaps you're listening to the podcast, which is available on iTunes, SoundClouds, and all podcast apps, or on the website, divorcedialogues.com. And I'm talking today with Kristen Kirkpatrick about nutrition and well-being while facing divorce and getting her tips on some things that you can do if you're going through a divorce or any other traumatic time or crisis in your life in order to use food and diet and nutrients to make yourself feel better, help yourself improve your mood. And let's talk a little bit about metabolism. I mean, what happens to a body's metabolism when somebody's going through a really stressful period? Does it speed up, slow down, and what can we do to change that? Yeah, there's a lot of things that impact metabolism. You know, if you look at an increase in cortisol, which is our stress hormone, that can negatively impact metabolism that could put weight on. So there's that component of, okay, what are the components that make me put weight on? And that could be, I'm really stressed, but alongside that stress have also has to be some other habits like unhealthy eating and sedentary behavior. And the flip side of that, of course, metabolism can speed up if you are trying to distract yourself and provide constant distraction to sadness or anxiety you're feeling by just being out and about all day, running around, never stopping, never sitting. Of course, your metabolism will speed up because of that. But those are all typically temporary measures with metabolism. I mean, when you think really about long-term impact on metabolism, that really has a lot to do with our overall muscle mass. So how much muscle do we have carrying around versus fat or water? So that's kind of number one. And I think number two is, you know, really above and beyond muscle mass, what is our disease risk? Uh, we know that certain chronic conditions can impact metabolism. Obviously, sedentary behavior impacts metabolism. So I think you can do things to kind of speed things up from the short term, but the long term is going to be about getting your body in the best shape possible. And that means focusing on I'm getting a little bit more muscle. A lot of the, especially female patients that I've been working with who are going through divorce, they transition from doing aerobic activity to resistance training. 
And there's a lot of factors that I see have been very beneficial for that decision. Uh, increase of self-esteem, being able to lose weight, being able to become stronger. There's something to be said, Catherine, about making yourself a stronger person by physically becoming stronger with more muscle. So yeah. there's there's that component as well. That's really interesting. I think that the symbolism there, right, and the feeling that you could right. handle, you know, a stranger in a dark alley or something like that yeah. really does feel empowering and can really change a person's perspective on life. I think that's what you're saying, and that perspective can really help feel like they're on the road to recovery. On the road to recovery. I'm no longer a, a weak woman. I have heard that so many times from my patients that are going through a divorce. I felt weak throughout my marriage, and now I am no longer weak. I can get through anything. And the physical transformation can help with that. And what are some things, Christian Kirkpatrick, that people might not realize that are getting in the way of forming healthy habits? Yeah. So I think the the mindless eating is one of them. So kind of not being able to tap into actual hunger, right? That's one thing. Not focusing, as boring as it sounds, really not focusing on meal planning and snack planning and just planning in general. When you do those things, you end up getting all your food from a restaurant or from fast food. And we have seen plenty of studies showing that those choices actually negatively impact both our immunity and our mental health status. So I think that planning really can be an important predictor of being able to stick on a healthy plan. And when you have no plan at all, you're much more likely to fall to bad habits. So overeating, mindless eating. You know, it's, I, I saw this statistic yesterday. It was so interesting that since we've been in this pandemic, the sales of cookies and crackers, this was an actual conference, Zoom conference that some big food companies had, have gone up by 30%. Wow. And not only have they gone up, but this one article said that it was a marketer's dream because they've gone up and there's new buyers. So people that had typically were not buying cookies and crackers are now buying cookies and crackers. So stocking this in the house. And, you know, the same can be said for the anxiety and depression and everything that goes along with divorce as well. Keep those things out of the house. Think about, like, what nourishes me? What makes me stronger? What makes me better? And cookies and crackers are not it. So... It's much easier to not have those things. This is such an obvious statement, but so hard to do. Much easier not to have them if it's not in your pantry, right? If it is in your pantry, then uh, yeah, it's easy to grab it. So really stocking your fridge and your pantry with nutrient-dense foods and making sure that you're eating well and having access to those really good foods as opposed to having access to junk. Yeah, I think you're going to eat what's there, right? And if you if you make some conscious decisions and don't go to the supermarket when you're hungry and you go with a plan, you're much more likely to enact a plan that works for you rather than yeah. fall into bad habits. That makes a lot That's of right. sense to me. Yeah. This is Divorce Dialogues, and I'm Catherine Miller, and I'm talking today with Kristen Kirkpatrick as a dietitian counselor about divorce, eating, and nutrition in ways that will make you work and feel better. And Kristen, if people are interested in finding out more about you or your work, how can they do that? Yeah, probably the best way is to go to my website, which is kristenkirkpatrick.com. Kristen is spelled with an I. And I'm, of course, also on social media. Uh, Chrissy Picks is my Instagram handle. And I'm posting a lot on kind of mental health and some of the foods and especially what we're going through with anxiety and depression now and how you can improve that. And that really is relatable to, I think, someone going through divorce as well. I think so, too. And do you work with people remotely? 
I do, yeah, through the Cleveland Clinic. So our telehealth has actually been in place for several years. In fact, most of my patients are telehealth patients. And so, yeah, we've got a whole team of dietitians, but I am one of them, and we've got some great telehealth options for people to work remotely with us. And I know that you say that being a nutritionist is your vocation, not your not your occupation. So how did that end yeah. up happening? How did you get so interested in this field? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I was a very overweight, probably obese child and teenager, and I was heading down the road to diabetes. My blood sugars were out of control, and so my doctor told my mom that I had to see a dietitian. And I just remember going to see this dietitian. She's very nice. But she was perfect body, never had a weight problem, and she basically told me stop stockpiling uh, nutty bars under my bed and eating them at night, right? And I remember Duh. thinking to myself, or exactly, I remember thinking to myself, well, I could have told that. I wish I didn't do that. I didn't do it. And so I think that at a very young age, I realized that weight loss eating and making lifestyle change was so hard and that people ultimately want to make the change. It's not a lack of wanting to. It's a lack of being able to. So that's really what I wanted to focus on is to really kind of, um, especially for women, empower women and be able to, to work with them and work with the setbacks because there's going to be setbacks. We cannot look at the images and some of the the diets and things that we see when we're paging through a magazine. It's not realistic. So we have to figure out what works for us and what wellness looks like for us. And it's different for everybody. So I think it's an ultimate motivator for me working with someone initially who didn't understand me and didn't understand that I didn't want to overeat. I didn't want to be fat, right? That wasn't the point. So I, I think that was kind of where I made my decision at a young age to go into this profession. You know, I'm so glad I asked you that question because I think that so many people think, oh, dietitian, and they feel criticized or judged or, you know, oh, yeah. somehow or other, you know, imperfect. And we all feel so imperfect anyway, which I think particularly when it comes to our bodies, at least most women do anyway. And, yeah. uh, and I think that the idea that you yourself struggled with overweight and eating habits that were not in maybe your best interest. So what was it that that changed for you and made it something that you could manage instead of something that that was overwhelming? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Catherine. When people ask me, like, how long it took me to lose the weight, I'm often say, oh, you know, probably took an average of five to six years to really get it right. And then when they say, well, you know, how, how long did it take you to figure out how to keep it off? I tell them I'm still figuring it out, right? I, I still go back to bad habits too, and I'm, I'm not perfect either. But I think what was the key for me is that I could still have things that were related to that childhood bad habit, but have it infrequently and not feel bad or shameful about it. So I think that was the key. I think what women do wrong is that they give themselves a number. What's your goal today? My goal is I want to be a size two. My goal is I want to get into my jeans from high school. Okay, so I think like we give ourselves, uh, whether it's realistic or unrealistic, we tie our worth and our ability to be better based on a number, based on something that makes us happy. But really, it's about 
becoming stronger, being able to be comfortable in the body that is most comfortable for you. So that's not to say, um, you know, it's okay to be morbidly obese. There's a lot of risk factors that go along with that. But, you know, you might never be a size two, right? I mean, if you've never been a size two in your life and now you're in your 50s, 60s, chances of you becoming a size two are not that great. So I think like... Have we lost you, Christian Kirkpatrick? I'm still here. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much for being our guest. I think you have offered us so many really helpful hints, and I feel like I should create a a, a divorce supplement that I give to all my new clients so that they can start on the right path. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much.